You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 1, Episode 4. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. Today's guest is my friend Jamil Salmi, former tertiary education coordinator with the World Bank, global higher education consultant, and all-around mensch. Back in the mid to late 2000s, Jamil was perhaps the world expert on the phenomenon of world-class universities, and his recipe for creating them, money plus talent plus good governance, and let's stir for a few decades, has certainly stood the test of time. But lately, Jamil's work has taken a different turn, switching from notions of excellence to notions of institutional missions, and in particular, universities' mission to be open to all who can benefit from them. Over the past couple of years, he's been working extensively on the issue of equality of access in different parts of the world, in particular, low- and middle-income countries. You will not be shocked to learn that higher education access is unequal everywhere. What's more interesting, perhaps, is the fact that these gaps vary significantly by country, and not always in ways that you would think. I asked Jamil about which countries were doing well or poorly and why. His answer was essentially that regardless of what policies have been adopted, for instance, free tuition, closing participation gaps is mostly a function of society's desire for equality, and the higher education piece can't simply be taken out of context. He also had some really interesting things to say about the lessons of COVID with respect to inclusion, particularly as they pertain to institutions. The real lesson? Be prepared. As the climate emergency progresses, there are a host of reasons that institutions might have to close for long periods of time. Deep freezes, fires, flooding, and keeping students in school and engaged is incredibly important, especially for those from underserved communities. But I'll let Jamil speak for himself. Have a listen. Jamil, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Alex. Thanks for having me. I want to start by talking about your most recent work for the UNESCO Higher Education Conference in Barcelona last year. It examined inequality in access to higher education across a wide number of low and middle income countries. It struck me as I was reading it, you know, 15 years ago, your name was synonymous with world-class universities and, and research intensity, which was the global issue in higher education at the time. Now you're working on accessibility. Is that an indication that the emphasis of the global debate around higher education is shifting? And, um, you know, if so, how is that shift going to play out over the next few years, do you think? And I don't know if it's, uh, you know, the chief shift in really in the global higher education thinking or if my own evolution, um, you know, we started with the rankings, the global rankings becoming hot in the early 2000s and uh, and countries, institutions, uh, been getting excited and uh, I'm not the one who coined this term of world-class university, I guess. It may, may have been Phil, um, Altbach, or, but anyway, increasingly countries um, sought uh, to understand and I, I was involved in, in some work in Malaysia, for example, to try to fa- uh, determine the characteristics of what would be called world-class universities and understanding the path to become a world-class university. But over the years, I think um, many people have started to rely that, to realize that uh, you know the, the narrow focus on rankings uh, was very dangerous because university would position I mean would have this the position the ranking as their main goal instead of uh, focusing on their on their mission. And so more recently, I've been working on what I call the beyond thinking about beyond academic excellence. 
Um, and, and, and this is also linked to the world we live in today, the world of fake news and uh, conspiracy theories, and realizing that the original mission of universities to provide true, you know, to look at the truth as scientific evidence, the critical thinking uh, uh, was very important. Another dimension that we shouldn't forget is ethics. Um, you know, we all crisis with um, people prestigious from prestigious universities, graduates becoming political, uh, corrupt politicians, etc. So the ethics, uh, we have to remind ourselves that this is a fundamental mission. And then when we think about all the threats our planet is under, uh, you know, hunger, poverty, inequality, and of course, climate change, so reminding ourselves of the social commitment mission. And of course, last but not least, equity and inclusion you know there is this bias or assumption that world class university has to be an elite institution but that's not necessary and uh, perhaps i i'll have time to come back to this issue later on great well your report is about inclusion and inequality but inequality is a very big multi-dimensional concept i was surprised by the number of dimensions for which you managed to get some data but can you tell us a little bit about the different dimensions of inequality that you were trying to investigate and also, how easy was it to measure these different dimensions in a cross-national context, given you know the wide variety of different national measuring sticks for for these concepts? Thanks for this question. That um, I wish I had more time to respond because it's it's very complex. But I'll try to to summarize. I think first is to understand the determinants, and it's a time sequence because what we see uh, when we get to higher education is just the end of a long journey. Um, Bruce Chapman, whom you know, we, we both know as the father of the income contingent loan system in Australia, used to say half jokingly but half seriously, uh, if you want to position yourself well for the, your future, uh, you have to choose your parents carefully. And, and, and that's, you know, that's where it starts. You have wealthy families where you have a lot of cultural capital, and that will determine already how well you are able to learn when you get to primary and secondary. So what happens in primary and secondary education uh, or what doesn't happen for some people, many people, that will determine the pipeline of incoming students uh, reaching higher education. And then when we look at the barrier, there are fundamentally two types of barriers, financial, and, and too often we focus on that. You know, you have to pay fees for people who, from from the low income groups are disadvantaged, um, and then you have opportunity cost, etc. And you, you have written a lot about these these issues. And then you have what I call the non monetary dimensions. I've already mentioned cultural capital, but academic preparation, motivation, information. These are elements that also determine the probability of uh, entry into education. And then you have this, you know, the dimension of access, but the dimension of success, you know, many students enter and then especially in the open access systems, like in Argentina or in France, and then half of them will never graduate. And increasingly, a new feature, a new dimension I've been looking at is what happens when you graduate. So you could have people with the same degree, but because of their individual characteristics, you know, being white or black, or being a man or woman, their, their labor market outcomes will be different. And then when you answer your question about uh, measurement, that's, that's a big challenge because uh, very, 
you know, it's very unequal, uneven in terms of availability of, of data. A growing number of countries have household surveys, which which you can look at enrollment rates by income groups. That's interesting, sometimes by gender or by um, urban rural divide. But one of the big challenges is that in some countries, for philosophical reasons or because the constitution says that you cannot discriminate, it's... Um, you are prohibited from uh, asking questions about some dimensions. You know, in the U.S., it's current. You 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 tick uh, whether your ethnicity, etc. But in uh, let's say in France or in Germany, it's uh, it's not done. And then uh, there is this assumption that because we are universal democracy, there are no dimensions of discrimination. But we know that it's it they they exist and they are very. Acute, but that's so. The data is is really a challenge in uh, when you work on inequality. Yeah, let's delve into the dimension that uh, I think most people think of when they think of inequality and in access, and that's that's inequality by income or family income or wealth. I wasn't particularly shocked when I saw the overall participation gaps by income in your study, but I was kind of surprised by the differences between countries. You know, some countries have quite small gaps and others have very large ones. So could you tell us a little bit about your overall findings here? Well, I think it's directly, you know, inequality by of access in higher education by income. Uh, reflects very often inequality of income within society. So overall, you know, I think it's a, a fair generalization to say that Latin America is is, is terrible and uh, and Africa also, uh, and then countries like the US or even the UK are also in a, in very bad shape. And countries that are doing better would be the Nordic countries or some Asian countries like uh, South Korea. I mean, if you take the Nordic countries, these are very equalitarian, egalitarian countries. The tax system is also uh, very progressive. And so they tend to do much better than other parts of the world. I want to read you something that you wrote in the report. It's noteworthy to observe that Brazil, which offers free higher education in its public universities, is much more unequal than Chile, where until a few, a few years ago, students paid high tuition fees. In the former case, public universities enroll a high proportion of students from rich families who have studied in private high schools and are better prepared to take the competitive standardized entrance examination. In Chile, a comprehensive student aid system helped partially overcome the financial barriers faced by academically qualified low-income students. This point, that with respect to financial accessibility, it's the financial aid that matters and not the tuition fees, it seems obvious to me, and yet it never seems to be the politically popular choice, even in Chile, as we found out about a decade ago. Uh, why is that, do you think? Why don't governments accept that logic? Yeah, it's very it's ironic and sometimes sad that governments would not be analytical and think about these things. And, and you yourself, Alex, you've made always this point, which I think very important, that uh, what matters is the net cost to students, not the sticker cost. But... Uh, uh, because, it, but that's not what's happening. And as you were remarking, when we think about Brazil, but uh, many other countries, we see the poor subsidizing the rich. Uh, or if you think about Australia, which is hailed as one of the system with uh, the best funding uh, uh, approach with their income contingent uh, student loan, which is quite good in terms of equity, in terms of efficiency. But we have to look at the big picture and realize that uh, international students who pay much higher fees are subsidizing the domestic students. So 
um, the, but it's it's um, this kind of analysis are not uh, um, not many people make them, or if they are available, people don't think about it. And when what when we see about you know, changes in in countries like Chile or in uh, in South Africa, that these were driven by student protest and for students, you know, free higher education is an easy slogan, and and governments do not. Um, you know, it's very difficult for them to. Uh, to go against this uh, this trend, and I remember, you know, the, some work uh, I think uh, that you yourself did in in Western Europe for the for looking at uh, a few countries that had had introduced uh, student fees, like some German states, and they had to to go back uh, because it was not popular, even though it made sense. And when you talk to many university presidents in these countries, which have free uh, or very low tuition fees uh, uh, individually they will tell you that yes they will uh, they they need to have some degree of cost recovery as we see in uh, the Netherlands or even in in Switzerland so but for the but these same university presidents will never go out in public and say that there should be some degree of cost sharing for students from the richer families because it's really totally politically unacceptable Okay, thanks. We're going to take a short break. Back in a minute. Micro-credentials continue to be the most talked about area of innovation in post-secondary education. This week, Higher Education Strategy Associates, in partnership with the Strategic Council, will be releasing a new report on micro-credentials in the Canadian marketplace, a comprehensive analysis of national and international trends, practices, and policies around micro-credentials, as well as a national survey of employers and employees in Canada. If you're a university decision-maker tasked with maximizing innovation and value for micro-credentials, this is a report you can't afford to miss. For more information, please contact us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. Jamil, I want to move away from income inequality for a second because you also measured differences with respect to sex, with respect to ethnicity, uh, indigeneity. I thought it was interesting some of the statistics you had there. Again, you've got a variety of outcomes here across nations. Some look really interesting. Chile, again, I thought was the numbers were very positive on, on indigenous participation, while in other countries you have very substantial gaps. What's the pattern here? I think it's linked to national policies about uh, thinking about the past and recognizing the past. New Zealand is, uh, I would say, the world leader in recognizing that their Maori population has been treated very poorly and are trying to make amends for that and, and build that into their higher education policy. Uh, Australia, to 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 a large extent, I think. Uh, I mean, you know Canada much better than me, but it seems to me that it's it's becoming part of the national debate. Whereas uh, south of the border, in the U.S., it's there is a total rejection. In fact, uh, we are going uh, backward in, in the other direction of of trying to uh, erase any or prohibit any any discussions of this. Uh, Dimension. So, if a country uh, is aware, then they start investigating. They are, they have data. And they put in place policies to to counter or to to improve the situation. I think I'm much more optimistic in terms of gender, at least for enrollment, because with the exception of South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in fact, we have now a majority of girls in most higher education system. Where we still have problems is enrollment in STEM programs. 
proportion of senior academics and university leaders. You have the entire system, for example, in the I don't know, in, in Romania or in some Latin American countries where we, you would not have one single female university president. So it's, it's, it's a question of alignment between, uh, you know, national policies, uh, resources put in place. Austria, for example, has um, a, a dimension of gender bias, you know, in favor of girls in their funding formula. Australia has grants for indigenous uh, to support indigenous students so that universities are really enticed to do something on like that. Um, I would contrast that with India that has very good mandatory policies to promote uh, gender equality, to promote access for uh, indigenous uh, students, but there is no funding. So it's much, it's very difficult for institutions to, to make progress for lack of resources. Okay. So one thing that nagged at me as I was reading your work was was how seriously very poor developing countries should take the issue of inequality. Because it seems to me that it's much harder to get particularly with both the financial and the academic barriers under control in, in poor countries, it seems to me. And yet these countries need cadres. They need, they need educated people to make that jump in development. How would you talk to someone, I don't know, say in Tanzania or Mozambique about this kind of trade-off? If they just say, look, we just want as many students as we can get because the country needs them. We shouldn't mess around. We shouldn't worry too much or spend too much money on inequality stuff. How would you talk to them about that trade-off? Well, you know, the first trade-off, you were talking about resources. Yes, these countries are poor, yet many of them are buying tanks and fighter jets and spending so much money on their military and much less on, on education. Universal education at the basic level is, is, is so important from a social justice point of view. You cannot talk about democracy without that. And also to avoid waste of talent. You know, when you have so many young people who do not uh, finish primary school or high school or cannot access high education, you know, how many talented people with high potential are being left behind. And, and as you rightly said, you know, increasingly we talk about knowledge economy, but we know that it's, you know, in our technology driven uh, growth, it's, it's all about uh, the brains and minds. When you look at, at uh, South Korea, that was their start, the part of their success is, you know, they invested in basic education, then they grew uh, secondary education, charging fees for rich students and, and, and look what, where they are today. You also include some thoughts in your report about how COVID has affected higher education. Here in Canada, those effects were mostly deleterious, although I think uh, particularly students with disabilities might argue that COVID education was better for them than it was for some other people. There were more access was a little bit easier. What are your findings there? Is the COVID phenomenon, is that a long-term issue for higher education? Or are we going to be dealing with the effects for a long time? Or are we seeing recovery and it'll be done as an issue in a year or two? Well, certainly what we've experienced between the three years of COVID so far is that they have, it has, you know, revealed the depth and, and impact of disparities in higher education and amplified them in, in a way across countries, within countries, across higher education institutions, within single countries, among students. Uh, and as a result, we've seen learning loss. We see this serious issue of mental health and, and, 
uh, institutions now realizing that the well-being of their students and sometimes even academics and administrators uh, needs to have much more priority. And uh, I, you know, I know many people want to say, okay, let's forget, it's finished, it's over, let's go back to our old ways and the old normal. And that. but I don't think the you know the the old normal exists anymore. And I think. Um, you know, that on the positive side, you were mentioning uh, students uh, with disabilities, but uh, I believe that, you know, there have been some very interesting ex uh, experiences, uh, uh, innovations and about delivery of uh, teaching and, and the modality of learning. And I think this is an opportunity for many institutions to, to rethink uh, their education model, their business model because we've seen the you know the, the weakness and the uh, fragility of many systems many institutions and also to think in terms of long-term resilience i mean how many institutions were ready for the kind of uh, uh, you know this huge uh, rapid and, and uh, big shift from uh, uh, on-campus teaching and learning to online learning I know very few institutions, in, whether in rich countries or in, uh, even in the developing world, where this kind of uh, what if uh, mindset was there. You know, how do we prepare for the big? But when, when you think about it, many countries, many institutions operate in, in systems. Uh, so we have climate catastrophes, we have war, we have civil unrest. Uh, we have economic crisis, and 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 I, 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 that was not this kind of thinking about the impact of this crisis was not part of the strategic planning process or, or having uh, business continuity plans. And so I think there's a lot to rethink uh, as a result of the pandemic as uh, universities move forward. Interesting. A final question. When you were working on research excellence schemes, this is 10, 12 years ago, I remember you telling me that you know one of the underappreciated effects of these research-based rankings was to spur an enormous uh, amount of spending by governments who were suddenly conscious of their relative rating in research. I, I guess my question is, is there any way that a data-driven effort not necessarily rankings, but a data-driven effort could ever shame China or the European Union or the United States into spending lots of money to improve their standings on equity or, or inequality? Is is this the area, and I'm thinking now because I know the CHE is is trying to uh, put social inclusion indicators in the, uh, in the U multi-rank, is there any way we could use data to spur competition on that level? Whether we can use data uh, I do believe, yes, it would be very useful. In fact, um, there is now a ranking on economic mobility in the U.S., and you mentioned new multi-ranks efforts. But whether my question is, is there an appetite? You know, are institutions or countries interested in being shamed or interested in, in, in putting that high on their agenda? And I'm not too optimistic. And in fact, you know, after yesterday's announcement in Florida that uh, equity and inclusion were now seen as no-no's, as, as bad things. And when you think about the fact that affirmative action might be totally erased uh, from the political map in the U.S. Uh, when the, whenever the Supreme Court makes a, a decision. So it's, uh, you know, I, I see countries going backwards. I think it's, it should be in the national age agenda, but having the data is not enough. We need pressure groups to uh, to shame institutions. I mean, and there are examples. You know, if you compare Berkeley 
and Harvard in the US and look at the proportion of uh, Pell Grants recipients, you know, people who get uh, federal scholarships because they come from low-income families, uh, Berkeley has demonstrated clearly that you can be an elite university and a much more inclusive university than uh, most Ivy League institutions. Jamil, it's been a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It remains for me to thank the show's excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and of course you, the listener, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please send us a line at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. We're going to take a break next week, but join me two weeks from now for episode five, when our guest will be Dr. Jonathan Jansen, author of Corrupted, a study of chronic dysfunction in South African universities. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 